Of all the 39 individual books that make up the Old Testament, no other book other than the book of Psalms is quoted more frequently by the authors of the New Testament than the book of Isaiah. In fact, according to the New Testament scholar Craig Evans, who has looked into this, the book of Isaiah is either directly quoted, paraphrased, or alluded to more than 400 times in the New Testament. 400 times. Can you believe that? It's a rather astonishing fact in and of itself, but it also raises a question. Why? Why do the authors of the New Testament, as they reflect on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, why are they so often reminded of the words of this particular book? Or to put it another way, why in their attempts to understand and reflect on the reality of Jesus and what's happened in their midst, why are they so often forced or pushed to turn back to this particular book? What is it about Isaiah that is so attractive and compelling to them? Well, the church father, the fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, he suggested one answer. He said that what sets Isaiah apart is the remarkable combination of both passion and compassion that pervades this whole book and its tenor and its speech. Isaiah, he says, was very compassionate. When the actions of his people brought trouble upon them, he suffered no less than they. He was no less troubled and cried out more bitterly than his fellows. This is the way of prophets and saints. I think Chrysostom's right. There is, a, there is a beauty and a power to the emotional intensity of this book and to Isaiah's compassion, his heartfelt compassion for his people. And perhaps that's what makes it such a fitting script for a powerful musical oratio like Handel's Messiah, which is really just Isaiah put to music. It, several centuries after Chrysostom, there was another very influential bishop and theologian named Isidore of Seville, and he gave a slightly different response. According to Isidore, what makes Isaiah so special is not simply the, the passionate and the loving and the intense tone of the book, but the fact that Isaiah foretells so many aspects of Jesus' own life and gospel work, of what happens in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Among the prophets, Isidore says, Isaiah is certainly most revered because he narrated all the deeds of Christ in order and most fully. Whichever explanation you choose, be it the beautiful pathos of the book that comes through in Isaiah's voice, or its rich prophecies of Christ, there is undoubtedly something very special about Isaiah. There's a reason that not only Chrysostom and Isidore, but many of the other church fathers referred to this book as the fifth gospel. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've also got Isaiah. It's why the church father Jerome said that Isaiah is really more of an evangelist than a prophet. And yet, as special as Isaiah is, as compelling as he was for early Christians, this isn't an easy book to read. There's no real clear logical or narrative structure to it. 
It's not even entirely clear whether the book is the voice of a single prophet speaking to one specific generation of Jews, or whether it is, as most scholars now think, actually a combination of the prophecies of Isaiah with the prophecies of later prophets in the same school, given at different times, but now all collected together into this single book as we have it in Scripture. As you read Isaiah, you'll notice that there are times when it seems to be responding to specific events in the history of Judah, and Isaiah will talk about specific things that take place. But there are also many other times when it seems to just be repeating previous themes in new ways. Now, all of this means Isaiah is not easy to read. Indeed, as the renowned Hebrew scholar Robert Alter says, the book of Isaiah may well be the greatest challenge that modern readers will find in the biblical corpus to their notions of what constitutes a book. Nevertheless, with all its complexities, this book has had a greater impact on Christian understandings of the gospel than almost any other book. And over the next six sessions, we're going to learn a little bit more about why that is as we explore this remarkable book together, asking ourselves the question, what can Isaiah teach us about the good news of salvation that is at the heart of Christian faith? Now, this may sound rather strange to talk about Isaiah as a prophet of good news. After all, when you first begin reading the book, what you discover does not really seem to be good news at all. In fact, it seems quite the opposite. The opening words of Isaiah are not really an announcement of something good, but rather a declaration that something, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. These are the opening words of Isaiah, and they are tragic to say the least. The prophet is calling upon all of creation, heavens and the earth, to bear witness to what has become of God's people, his children, as the vision puts it. Not only have they rebelled against God, they seem to have forgotten him entirely. And this is unheard of, according to Isaiah. Not even a dumb animal, not even an ox or a donkey would do such a thing. But Isaiah doesn't stop here. No, in the verses that follow, it only seems to get worse. Ah, sinful nation, he says, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Uh, this is pretty shocking language. You got to admit that. Certainly not the kind of thing we tend to hear when we go to church these days. But maybe that's one thing that we need to learn from Isaiah. Perhaps if we are to understand what makes Isaiah good news, the news that he has to tell, then we need to begin where he begins with the horrific reality of sin. For as the Christian writer Frederick Beekner says, the words of judgment that Isaiah is directing 
against the people of Judah, these words reveal not only their tragic condition, but ours as well. Beekner puts it like this, If we are ever to find true shelter, it is with the recognition of our tragic nakedness and need for true shelter that we have to start. Thus, it seems to me that this is also where anyone who preaches the gospel has to start too, with the word that is tragedy before it is comedy, because it strips us bare in order ultimately to clothe us. So that's where Isaiah begins, not with a word of affirmation, not with a message of joy or peace or hope, but with a word of tragic judgment, stripping bare the people of Judah. They have sinned. Worse than that, they have rejected and despised, he says, the Holy One of Israel, the one who brought them out of Egypt, who delivered them, who made them prosper, the one who chose them as his children. They have rejected him, and they have become, as Isaiah so memorably puts it, laden with iniquity. Now, in the following chapters, Isaiah describes in more detail what this iniquity involves. And he specifically focuses on two great failures, two great iniquities that characterize the people of Judah. The first, he says, that the Jewish people are a people who have become corrupted through injustice. In chapter 1, for instance, he describes them, talking about Jerusalem, as a people of violence, a people whose hands, he says, are covered in blood. And along with the violence, he describes Jerusalem as a city where those in power fail to protect and to care for those in need, widows and orphans, those in distress, and where the rich enrich themselves at the expense of the poor. Woe to those, he says, who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. Uh, maybe that sounds like an odd charge for a prophet to make. But actually, the prophet Amos says something very similar in Amos chapter 3, verse 15. And there's a good reason for that. Because you see, in the book of Leviticus, God had made it very clear that all the land of Israel and Judah, all the land ultimately belongs to him, and that he had chosen to give it as an inheritance to all the people of Israel. And God had also instituted specific laws requiring that all lands that were purchased had to be returned every 50 years to the descendants of those to whom he had originally given the land. So when Isaiah, or when Amos, accuses the people of Judah and of Israel of being unjust, and then points to their accumulation of wealth, building extra houses and adding field to field, what he's saying is that they have failed to follow God's will. Through violence and through greed, they have become an unjust people and they have despised the law. As he puts it very memorably in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, the Lord hoped for justice and look jaundice for righteousness and look, wretchedness. And that's one of Isaiah's charges against the people of Judah, that they are a violent and unjust people. That's one of the reasons that they are laden with iniquity. But that's not 
all that his vision intends when it speaks of this weighty iniquity. Another theme that emerges in these early chapters of the book and then continues to be developed, we'll see this later on, is that of idolatry. See, instead of putting their trust in God, the people of Judah are placing their hope in a variety of other sources of power, including other gods and spirits, but most especially in the power of mighty military and political leaders. And that's, that's one of the greatest of Judah's failures in the book of Isaiah. It is why Isaiah is so horrified. And it's a charge that recurs again and again throughout the pages of this book. You see, during the time of Isaiah's ministry, it seems that whenever the Jewish people faced a hostile or threatening situation, some king was coming to invade, their first instinct was to turn in their fear to the protection of pagan idols or to take refuge in the power of kings. And, you know, in that sense, they're really not that different from us, are they? And the Protestant reformer Martin Luther once said that a God is that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress. It is not hard to understand why the people of Jerusalem would want to seek the protection of a mighty king or the blessing of a deity. Those were the sources of power in their day. That's what could offer security. And they were what people looked to for good in their lives, as Luther says. They were where people sought refuge in times of distress. Now, today, our gods may take a different form, but that doesn't mean that we don't also have them, that we don't have things that we look to to provide good or refuges that we turn to in times of distress. And you know, that's one of the reasons why we need to continue to study and read this book because we need to hear its tragic words of judgment. We need it to shed light on the injustices of our own time, to call out the, the rival gods that we might be turning to as sources of refuge. But more than that, we need to study Isaiah because we need to hear its message of good news. And remember, as I mentioned earlier, it is that which early Christians most often associate Isaiah with. Not the severe words of judgment, but the announcement that something good has happened. The announcement of good news. Now this good news is spread all throughout the book of Isaiah and often interrupting or immediately following a passage of judgment. You know, one of the best examples of this comes early in the book, in chapter 9. And this is a passage that's well known in Christian circles. It's often read during Advent or Christmas. It comes right after a vision describing the coming judgment of Judah that will be brought about by these warring Assyrians. Chapter 8 describes how God is going to use the Assyrians to bring judgment to Jerusalem. It's a bleak chapter. But then, in chapter 9, we read this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And then, just a few verses later, we hear 
The good news that has brought about this remarkable turn of events, this reversal of fortunes. Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jewish readers have long interpreted this prophecy as a vision of the coming rule of King Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, who indeed was one of the greatest kings of Judah and who brought great blessing to his people. But Christians have heard in these words the prophecy of an even greater king, a future son of David, one who would bring light into darkness and one whose reign would bring justice and peace to a world rent by injustice and violence. And that's the good news of Isaiah. That is what we will continue to study over the next five sessions as we delve into this incredible book together, this news that light has come into darkness, that even in the midst of the darkness of our own idolatry and our own injustice, a light has shone.